I met some kids from church and they lived in my neighborhood. And I remember going over to their house. And one of the kids one day, and I still remember as, as it was yesterday, had a toolbox, a little kid's toolbox. And he opened it up and I saw a picture of, of a woman on the, on the outside. Well, then they opened this up and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The first time I saw a naked woman. At one point I used my position. We went to a nightclub on a disturbance involving some exotic dancers. I walked out of the nightclub after handling the call and uh, one of my buddies turned around and said, hey, one of the dancers wants you to call her. Here's her phone number. And uh, I did. That was the first time I betrayed my first wife. I remember going to the church and the first thing this pastor said is he said, I have an announcement to make. He said, I committed the sin of David. And I looked at her and I said, what's that? And she said, well, he committed adultery. And just then I felt the Lord just convict me at that point, said this has to stop. Well, Mike, it's an honor to be here in California, in your home state in your office, for the people who may not know you, um, could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, well, my name is Mike Manzi, and uh, I'm 59 years old, and uh, actually live in Clovis, California, but my office at New Creation Ministries is in Fresno, California, which is basically in the middle of the state. Mm -hmm. And I'm married to my lovely wife, Joy. I've been married 15 years now. I have three wonderful stepchildren and uh, five grandbabies. Come on. Well, Mike, it's an honor to be able to hear your testimony. I've heard your testimony before, but now we actually get to record it for others to be able to uh, see what God has done in your life. And so it's an honor. Um, tell us about your life before Jesus, starting with your childhood. Sure. Well, I was born and raised um, in Illinois, outside of Chicago. And uh, my dad worked for the railroad, and my mom was, a, at that time, a stay-at-home mom. And from the earliest memories, um, I, was, I was born and raised in a Christian home. And, and how I define that is, at, at the earliest age, I remember my mother primarily showing me the love of Jesus and the way she took care of me and the way she encouraged me, read me Bible stories, teach me to pray. And, and really at such a young age to have that intimate relationship with Jesus. And, and I felt that in, in my soul. So as some people have a salvation story, um, I, have, I have several stories coming back to Jesus. But I, I knew he was always there in my life um, growing up. In fact, at one point as a little boy, my mom had a prophetic word from the Lord that someday I would preach to thousands. And I thought, well, mom, I don't wanna be a preacher. At that time, I think I wanted to be a garbage man or something. My dad, on the other hand, um, sort of just went along with things. Um, I remember us going to church. Uh, again, right outside uh, Chicago, we attended a Lutheran church. And uh, now I love the church because of the liturgy. Um, but then I didn't really understand what was said. You know, and uh, I would draw, and my dad would draw little motorcycles for me. And when I think back at that time, I remember what I loved most about church at that point was the donuts, the jelly donuts. But again, just knowing the peace at, at, at times growing up. But then there's a pause, because um, as I got older, probably six, seven years old, um, at times my loving, caring mom wasn't that loving, caring mom. I wouldn't know what happened. All I can remember, and I can't remember specific details, but my mom was very hard to understand. At times she couldn't walk. She would be slumped over. At the time my sister lived with us and my sister and my dad would, would escort my mom into uh, their bedroom and uh, try to just ease me a little bit and say, mom is not feeling well, she's nervous, but she'll be fine tomorrow. And I always looked forward to tomorrow, that next morning, because I got my mom back. My mom was very loving at that time. But I remember that time growing up that, that to me, as I look back now, was really a, a traumatic point in my childhood. I remember being overprotected. I remember uh, my mom taking me to kindergarten. And again, I would tell my mom that she could leave and have one cup of coffee, and, but she'd have to come back. Well, I realized, you know, she came back a couple hours later, you know, but my mom was always there for me in one sense. But it, like I said, on the other sense, at times I felt abandoned by my mom. 
Uh, I didn't know that word at the time, but I know that now as I look back on it. Well, when I was nine, uh, my dad worked for the railroad. He got transferred to California. And growing up in Chicago, we had a lot of family, a lot of family friends. But when we moved to California, we knew nobody. I had some, some relatives that lived up in San Francisco and some down in Los Angeles, but we literally were alone. And I remember myself crying. I remember my mom crying. At the time, my sister didn't live with us. She moved away. And what was also challenging is my dad worked nights, so I wouldn't see my dad often. And remember, this was the early 70s, so it wasn't like you got the weekends off. My dad would only get a couple days off a month, but I would always look forward to that. But what would happen at that time, I just remember being so very lonely. I struggled with what, what I now call self-esteem. Growing up, um, I had a lot of health issues. I was born with a severe skin condition. My hands at this point now, I don't know if you can see on the camera, but they're, they probably look like any 59-year-old man. But my wrinkles that you see now, I had as a little baby. And talk about a self-esteem issue. Um, my friends, my schoolmates would say, you have old man hands. Also, I was cross-eyed, okay? And I was very small for my age. I never felt that I could go to, to my dad or my mom at times and, and talk about those things. It was just like, well, Jesus loves you, we love you. So I struggled with that. Um, in fact, when my, I was born, my dad was 45, my mom was 43, they, they looked their age. And I remember meeting some friends from church in, in Fresno. Uh, I was even embarrassed to tell, tell my friends that these were my parents. I, I, for probably six months, I said they were my grandparents. And uh, I remember one time my dad said, he found out, he said, why'd you say that about us? And I, and, and, and I don't even remember what I said. So once again, very lonely, um, low self-esteem, all those kind of things, insecure. And uh, wasn't very good in sports. You know, little boys play, play sports real well. And uh, even though I like sports, my dad didn't have a lot of patience for me. You know, even though he went to a few of my baseball games, most of the time I remember, you know, riding my bike myself. Um, to those. During that time, my mom's nervousness increased, okay? I would come home from school, uh, third, fourth grade, and I would knock on the door, and the majority of the time, my mom would open the door, and she'd give me that love, loving kiss and hugs, and tell me, how was your day, and I was praying for you, and, you know, Jesus was with you, and I just loved that peace. But on occasion, I would knock on the door, and nobody would come to the door. And even when I share my testimony today, I feel trauma rise up because I knew something was wrong. So I'd use my key, I'd open the door, and I'd look to the left because that's where a kitchen was and where my mom mostly was, and she'd be slumped over at the table. Well, my dad gave me a little piece of paper with his work number on it, and I would have to call him, and I would say, Mom is nervous. And I remember him saying, Well, hand Mom the phone. Well, Mom was slumped over. Her speech was slurred. Um, later on, I found out my mom was an alcoholic during that time. But remember, I'm just a nine-year-old boy not knowing what's going on. So my dad would say, go to your room. So I'd go to my room and I'd look down the hall, um, but I just remember being very nervous. But something told me that Jesus was still there with me. Even though I was going through this, I felt a peace. I felt an inner peace. It wasn't like, you know, I was so, so scared because I knew my dad would come back would come home. Um, so when I think about that, and also that was, that was affirmed because as I grew up, my friends would come over to our house and say, you know, there's a piece at your house. Well, I didn't know what that was, but it was the anointing. So even though my mom was, was just a wonderful, you know, Christian woman, she battled. She battled alcoholism during this time. It was only in later years that I found out that my dad called my sister up who lived out of town. And and she was newly married in Texas and had her come to uh, Fresno because, she's, because my dad said, I'm afraid of what mom might do to Mike or not do. And, and I remember now, you know, when we look at trauma, oftentimes it's not what happened to you, it's what should have happened to you and should have happened to you consistently. Well, even when my mom was well, was well I'd come home. And by God's grace, I met some kids from church and they lived in my neighborhood. And I remember going over to their house. And one of the kids one day, and I still remember as, as it was yesterday, had a toolbox, a little kid's toolbox. And he opened it up 
and I saw a picture of, of a woman on the, on the outside. Well, then they opened this up, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The first time I saw a naked woman outside of my mother, and just this euphoric feeling filled up in me, and I was just captivated by this. And I, I, I didn't know what I was feeling. I just knew it was exciting on one hand, but on the other hand, I knew it was wrong. I knew something was wrong with that. And I remember quickly closing that up. Looking back as an adult, that's the feeling that Jesus gives us that we're supposed to have when we see our wife wow. or our husband on the, our wedding night, this euphoric feeling. But as a young boy, nine, 10 years old, I was hijacked that. But something drove me to that. And I started to look at this. And I remember another friend said, hey, my dad has these too. And all of a sudden, We've got these playboys. But what was, what was deceptive about this, it wasn't just the picture of this. I remember turning that centerfold over and reading the centerfold's biography. I remember her name to this day. And I remember where she wants to go on vacation because that image is seared in my mind, seared in my mind. And that was the first time that my pornography addiction, my sexual addiction was planted in me hmm. at that moment. And, and that continued because I realized when, you know, my dad was working and, and my mom was busy doing whatever at home, I, I would always go next door. And at times my friends didn't want to look at the Playboy. So what I would do is I sneak in their house and I look at them myself. Wow. And sometimes I would steal them. And that started my, my addiction, like I said. Right after that, um, and I... Mike, really quick, sure. when it came to the, the porn addiction at this time, obviously... Uh, this was something that was personal to you and you were completely um, captivated by it. But inside of you, with your Christian background, was there any part of you that felt this is wrong or was it just, oh man, this is this is amazing? You know, what, what was going inside of you with, with that? I knew it was wrong. I, I knew I felt guilty. I knew my mom would call it the Holy Ghost then. You know, we call it the Holy Spirit today. But I knew it was, I knew something was wrong with that. But I didn't have that relationship where I could go to my dad openly and talk about that. Mm. And it was like, we don't talk about those things. We're a Christian family, we don't talk about sex. In fact, you know, a couple years later, I had the Facts of Life talk, and that was about a 30 second, and I still didn't even understand, you know, what, what was going on, you know. Um, a couple years after that, I remember my dad buying me a, a little stereo at one of the stores. And uh, when, I, when I got back into the car, I asked my dad, I said, I wonder if the sales lady's a virgin. And he goes, what did you say? And I said, is she a virgin? He goes, do you even know what that means? Hmm. And I said, doesn't it mean someone that dates? Because she seems like a nice lady. He goes, it doesn't mean that. Don't say that again. So once again, it was shut down for me, Yeah, you know, for that. But I knew... I knew it was wrong to answer your question. I looked forward to my dad's days off. And one of the favorite things I loved doing as a little boy is going to Montgomery Wards. And I'd go with my dad and we'd look at the tools and the lawnmowers. But one day as we were driving out of the lot, I looked across the street and I saw a building and I saw a sign on it and it said Penthouse Beauty Salon. And all of a sudden that euphoric feeling rose up in me. I, I didn't realize at the point what happened but when I got home, I did, because I looked at my stash of porno mags and one was a penthouse. And I just thought, wow, there's probably more magazines over there. So I got on my bike and drove over there. It was a couple miles. It was a tiring trip. And I remember parking in front. And again, the name of it is Penthouse Beauty Salon. But as a 10-year-old, I think I'm going to walk into a building of beautiful naked women. Well, I open the door and I see a bunch of ladies with curlers in their hair. And, and the lady at the front desk said, young man, are you looking for your mom? And I went, no. And then I look at some magazines that are, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. These are beauty magazines. And I was so disappointed. But just to tell you, that's what I thought as a young boy. I was so eager and so driven when I felt lonely to do this. Well, things got worse from there. Um, one of my friends that had magazines, I went over to the house one day and uh, he touched me. And I went and it felt uncomfortable. And I came home and I told my mom. And my mom told me, tell him not to do that anymore. 
Well, it continued and it continued and it continued and uh, full-blown molestation. I felt guilty, I felt horrible, but on one sense, I had this feeling like I'm enjoying this. And I realized later on that my body doesn't know who's touching me, if it's my abuser, if it's my girlfriend or my wife. But that, that seed at that time, I thought I was, you know, I was attracted to, to boys at that time. And by then I was probably 12, 13 years old. And once again, you know, that was part of my teenage years. Going back to the church, very involved in church, vacation Bible school, Sundays. Um, I remember, you know, one of the teachers pulled me aside and, and said, you know, he feels that I'm a natural leader someday, but I really didn't understand that. So even as a young boy, I sort of lived a double life. I knew who Jesus was. But again, I, I, as hard as I tried, I would tell myself, okay, I'm not going to act out. I'm not going to look at these magazines. I would throw them away. And then a couple days later, I'd go back and I'd take them out of the trash or I'd go to my friend's house and find more. And uh, it, uh, it continued. That, that continued for decades. At one point, we found a 8-millimeter porn movie uh, in a field. Now, most of your audience doesn't even probably recognize what 8mm is, but that was before VHS and Betamax. And my dad had an 8mm video camera, and he would record family movies on it. So one day I took the video camera next door to my buddy's house, and we started to watch porn movies. And what was diabolical about that is now, all of a sudden, I'm starting to, to see a fantasy played out, and things I never thought of or pictured things happening, and all the, all the evil stuff, all of a sudden now that's planted in my mind because I'm seeing you know, real, real people performed on this. And once again, I was, I was embarrassed, but something continued to draw me to that. Only later I found out it, it was my, my loneliness. It, it was, as parents, we want our kids to come to us when we have questions about sex or facts of life or any of those. But my generation of parents, we didn't talk about that. And I'm going to find my answer somewhere, and unfortunately, I found it there. In my teenage years, I was very shy again, um, still, still that little boy that's not really good at sports. But I remember I used to idolize some sports figures in my junior high. And I, I used to watch the, the kids play baseball. And I remember looking at them one time coming off the field, and I thought, boy, I wish I was as tall as they were and as good as they were. And one of the star athletes on our, our school team looked at me and said, look at that faggot. And right there, once again, my identity was affirmed. I am a faggot. I am. I'm not, I don't just do bad things. I'm a bad person. And it's affirmed because that's what I do. I live a double life like this. So just that, that, um, that grief, that anguish, um, that shame, you know, would rise up in me. But as much as that did, God was still there. Um, God was still there. I knew God was there in, in certain areas of my life. Um, as I look back, I really didn't recognize it. I knew there was a special calling on my life. I got involved in a youth group at a new church. I love that, okay? Um, started to do some teaching there. Went to an evangelical church. And I remember going into the church the first day, it had basketball courts. And I went, how neat is that? So once again, you know, I believe God was doing a work in me, you know, that was still developing, but I still had this other side. And Mike, did you ever, I, I know at home, there wasn't a safe space for you to share what you were going through. But as you were joining these different groups and you were around Christian leaders, was there a safe place there? What did that look like for you? Did you get to talk to some of those leaders about what you were going through? Yes and no. Um, you know, much like today, we didn't talk about those things because we looked at that as there's sin in your heart. Well, true, there is sin in your heart, but there's also pain in our heart. But I looked at this, if I just try harder and pray, it will go away. Now, as much as I did feel, and I had some wonderful mentors at that age, nobody asked me those questions, though. Nobody asked me those questions. The closest was is at, and I attended a Christian high school. During one of the breaks, he talked about the sin of masturbation and how evil that was. 
But when he presented it to me, it wasn't in a loving manner. It was more a condemnation manner. And they said, you had to take this piece of paper home and tell your parents. What the school should have done is should have let the parents know what was coming home so they could sit down with me. So to answer your question, it started. I think the intention was there, but just the culture at the time, the church and the community I grew up, didn't address these issues that should have been addressed. Hmm. And Mike, how all of this, this happening in your childhood and in your teenage years, how did this affect you as you uh, continue into your adulthood? Well, what had happened is um, my addiction got worse, but also I think my, my walk with Christ strangely increased as well. Because I really believe when God works in your life and things happen like that, yeah, God will take a pause, but he's not going to let the devil disrupt or hijack the plan. Right. When I met my, uh, my first wife, Stacy, I remember the first thing that her mother asked me was, if you die today, would you go to heaven? And I said, yes, why? Well, because I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember her asking me, do you have a mentor in your life? And I said, no, I was 23 years old. So she got a family friend who was 85 years old. And I would meet with him every couple weeks for about two years until he passed. So even though I was still in this sin, I still, the Lord was still pouring into my life. He was still showing me. And I never felt the shame. Yes, I felt more condemnation probably because I knew it was wrong. But when I would pray and I would talk to Jesus, not one point did I feel him condemn me of this. And looking back over this life, there was probably some other things I could have done. He probably put other people and circumstances in my life that I could have took hold of, but at the point I didn't. I became a law enforcement officer, a police officer. You know, that has its own challenges, right? A lot of ego involved in that. And as much as, you know, in my later years, God used that position to bless numerous people, early on as a rookie officer, it wasn't the case. At one point, I used my position. We went to a nightclub on a disturbance involving some exotic dancers. And uh, I walked out of the nightclub after handling the call. And uh, one of my buddies turned around and said, hey, one of the dancers wants you to call her. Here's her phone number. Wow. And uh, I did. That was the first time I betrayed my first wife. Now, at the time, we had problems in our marriage. She came from a lot of emotional abuse. But basically, I turned into our, I didn't turn into our loving Christian, you know, wife. I turned into a porn star because that's all I knew. That's what sex was, was what I saw. I had her play out fantasies, actually be the role, play the roles that, that these, you know, disgusting scenes showed. And that drove her to have her own issues with alcoholism later on in, wow. in life. But again, going to church, still feeling, still having that. And, and that was a challenging for me. That was like, okay. Did she know about your brokenness? Like everything that you had experienced, had you shared that with her or were you still just holding this all inside? No, I was holding it all inside. Um, in fact, I never even shared with her my molestation. I kept that a secret till, till basically for my heart for 50 years. <laughs> wow. You know, she had passed since then. But what, what had happened at one point is um, she found my my uh, pornography and turned it over to her dad, and her dad turned it over to the police department, and they basically covered it up. Now, decades later, I gave my testimony to the same officers, mm. and I said, don't do that. When somebody's in this type of an addiction, deal with that person. They should have put me on admin leave. They should have got me help, but they didn't, mm. unfortunately, at that time. But looking at that part, Again, asking, is God into this? He did. What was, what was interesting, but also confirmed the, uh, the enormity of, of the sin of this, I remember when I dated that porn star, okay, that was this exotic dancer, I remember having sex with her, but it was the most shallow, awful feeling I've ever had in my life to this day. When I would make love to my wife, I would make love. I, I would feel love. I would feel that intimacy. I would feel what Jesus wants, why God created sex. And all of, the, all of this, these years in this addiction, I think this is it. This is the, the holy grail, right? But it was the most emptiest feeling I've ever had in my life. Again, I knew God was part of that story because we know what it's for. 
we know what, what sex is for, right? And I even remember telling her and trying to say, well, why don't we do this or why don't we do that, what you do in your movies? And she looked at me and she goes, that's disgusting. I would never do that in real life. And once again, I, the Lord ref used that to say, wait a minute, Mike, this is all in your head. This is your fantasy. But, and at that point, I realized a lot of my addiction was driven by stress. Okay, because that's what it is. It's, you know, pornography addiction is a shame reduction device. And, and I remember even testing for a position in, in, in law enforcement, the police department. And before I took my oral board, which is part of the promotional process, I got a new porn mag and acted out. I say acted out as masturbation and, and went to, to the oral board and passed the test. And so I used it later on, you know, as, as that to, to relieve stress, you know, for this. Um, and Mike, just to clarify, when you were dating uh, this porn star, this was within your marriage or before your marriage? This was uh, within my marriage. It was about uh, three years into the marriage. We started to have some problems. We separated. We decided we need to get marriage counseling. My, my first wife, Stacy, called me a, a narcissist. I thought she called me an arsonist. I said, I'm not an arsonist. She goes, you don't even know what that word means. But when we went to marriage counseling, the marriage counselor focused, focused on us. But I realized now in a marriage, before there can be a, a we, there has to be a me. Okay. And this is early 90s. He should have focused on my brokenness, my trauma to live with it. Now, let me fast forward or, or back up a little bit. When I was 15, my dad retired. So my mom's drinking stopped. Okay. So it was like that. It was compartmentalized and things re returned to normal. But that was still in me because we call that, you know, family of origin, you know, formative trauma. That was still there. And I realized as then as a 30-year-old man, I was a 30-year-old man intellectually, physically, socially, relationally. But emotionally, I'm that nine-year-old boy that was lonely because I didn't know what I, would happen if I came home. Only years later through counseling, I realized that as, as God started to heal, heal that process in me. But no matter what I did, God's plan for me never changed. And, and I always thought that later on, you know, as I gave my life back to Christ, you know, and I said, you know, of, of all my acting out, did it delay anything? And the Lord said, no, this is part of my plan. I knew you before I created the world. And I'm going to use your brokenness and I'm going to use your pain and your grief to share with others and, and relate with them because you're not the only one. And that's what I knew. I knew that as the Lord started to recover me. So dealing with all of this in your marriage now, did it get resolved? What happened in your marriage as you were dealing with all of this? So what happened, and, and I didn't realize the impact that it had on my wife. And we separated. I wound up reconciling. But that only lasted a few years. And then we had marriage problems again because both of us had to deal with our, our own issues. In 95, which was, what, eight years after I was married, things just got too volatile, and we separated again. At the time, what I should have done is I should have seeked counseling, but I didn't. She got counseling, but I betrayed her again. But I saw God working in her life. I actually saw a change in her, and, and I saw her forgiving me and, and getting help for her, for her hurt that I caused her. And, and I remember at the time she invited me to go to church. Now, she knew I moved out, but she didn't know I was cheating on her again. And I remember going to the church, and the first thing this pastor said is he said, I have an announcement to make. He said, I committed the sin of David. And I looked at her and I said, what's that? And she said, well, he committed adultery. And just then I felt the Lord just convict me at that point, said, this has to stop. This has to stop. Well, I knew it had to stop because I started to get physical problems, bad physical problems. I never had physical problems in my life. And at the time I was trying out for a special, special operation unit and I was pretty much gonna get the position because I had the background for it and the qualifications, but all of a sudden my back started to hurt. My arms started to hurt, my legs started to hurt. Just excruciating pain, I couldn't work out anymore and obviously couldn't take the test. And, and sin has its consequences. And, and that was one of the consequences when God says, I'm going to continue to turn up the heat in your life to get your attention. God wants 
to give us the desires of our heart, but not if we continue to go down this path. But by God's grace, we wound up getting a marriage counselor um, who asked me two questions. He said, Mike, I'm not gonna waste your time. I'm not gonna blow smoke up your butt. Do you love her? And by then I, I had no idea. I said, I don't know. He said, okay, fair enough. He said, number two, he said, do you want this relationship to last? I said, of course. I said, but also I need you to deal with my sexual addiction, my porn addiction. He said, I'll help. We'll deal with that. We'll deal with that and we'll deal with your wife's brokenness too and allow the Lord to put you guys together. And he did. It, it literally changed overnight my attitude towards my wife. I felt God just going, thank you. You opened the door. And he came in and the things that we would argue about in the past, they weren't an issue anymore. And as we went through counseling, there were, there were days that I heard some things that I didn't want to hear. You know, one of the things I heard is you have to look at the childhood trauma. I forgave my parents, but I knew I, I could no longer give them a pass. And, and you can make all excuses. That's how they were raised and they were raised. But the point being is this is how I turned out. But God took, took me with this immense pornography addiction and, and used it for his glory. At the time, Promise Keepers had just gotten started. Um, I traveled with them. I was actually an employee of them. And what is that, by the way? Uh, Promise Keepers. Yeah. Um, that's that men's group. They're still going today. They used to go in the big coliseums with, you know, 50,000 men. And I was part of their security team. I realized in my recovery, I needed men that would, would we could share the most deepest secrets. One of our models was, is we're going to share to the point of being terrified. And remember, I was so terrified and shameful, I didn't tell anybody. But as, as God gave me the strength to, do, to reveal it, I realized, well, I'm that way too, Mike. And Mike, I'm this way, and I'm that way. And I remember one event they had at Fresno, thousands of men came forward when, when the speaker spoke about, you know, but I thought I was the only one. But God took this man that was broken and shameful and completely restored me. And, and I went to Bible college. My career in law enforcement changed, and it was just such a blessing. My dad moved in with us, and there were some challenges there initially. We reconciled, you know, and all those kind of things. My mom had since passed. You know, she passed a couple years before that, and I, I dealt with that. That's another side of my, my testimony. But like I describe it now is I'm on a 90-mile-an-hour freight train. And if God could, could, you know, save me from my shameful past, and I can encourage others. And that's what I do now. I comfort those with the same comfort I myself received. You ended up remarrying again, right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about uh, going from your first marriage to your second sure, marriage? Sure, sure. What had happened was um, back in, uh, so anyhow, God reconciled the marriage. Was it perfect? No. Um, but I never cheated on her. We got involved with with couple groups and, and really ministered to a lot of folks. I shared my testimony. Um, but in two, 2007, um, she wound up getting uh, back pain one day. And uh, we didn't think anything of it. We worked out, you know, as a couple going to the gyms. And so the next day um, we woke up, I, we were gonna go back to work. She was a nurse and she woke up and she said, honey, I think I have paralysis. And uh, she said, I think I had a stroke. So we called 911. At the time, she was a charge nurse at a local hospital. So, you know, we get in the ambulance, we get there. You know, we know the staff. You know, she's worked there for years, right? So they run, run a few tests, and a couple hours later, they said she has pancreatitis. And uh, I said, what's that? And they said, well, that's when your pancreas over-secretes enzymes that digest your food. It's common occurrence, no worries, no food or drink for three days. I wasn't even going to call her parents. I thought I'd better. So anyhow, she got a room, I called her parents, we prayed over her, I kissed her, you know, she was talking. And uh, so I left her, that was 11 o'clock on July 10th of 07. So I came back, got off work early that day and came back to the hospital at uh, three o'clock and I walked in her room where her room was empty. So initially I thought, wow, I'm in the wrong room. This is a big hospital, it's a Kaiser. So I walk up to the nurse's station as I, as I walk it up there, I hear my name mentioned, I hear the phone go down. And I said, where's my wife? And they said, well, the doctor's coming. And I said, where's my wife? And just then two doctors came running down the hall and they said, Mike, we tried to get a hold of you. We, I guess we had the wrong number. I said, where's Stacy? And they both looked at each other and they said, we don't know how to tell you this, but she's dying. I said, what do you mean she's dying? Where's she at? He said, she's in ICU. He 
You say, we don't understand what's going on, but our organs are shutting down. So we, so we went in the hospital down there, and there she was, just hooked up to all these machines. But God used that time. She lived for 41 days, and God used that time for her to reconcile with her family, primarily her dad. And I saw God work in so many, so many miraculous ways there. And um, I saw another renewing of our marriage vows, even though she was, you know, comatose at that point. But I felt the peace of God come over me those 41 days. And when she finally passed, um, the Lord told me, no more crying, no more tears. She's running the streets of gold. And I remember the doctor pulling me aside and says, Mike, I don't know what to put on the death certificate. I've never seen this before. And uh, he said, I don't know what to put on there. But I knew all my years of trauma, all my years of betrayal took its toll, took its toll. And as I counsel men today, I, I tell them, you don't know the impact that it does on your wives, on your family, of your kids, you know? But God used that because two days after that, he said, if you will recommit your life to me, a hundred percent, you gave me 95% and you were doing well, but I want a hundred percent. I will do what I did to Job. I will restore everything to you tenfold. And during that time, not, not only did I lose my wife, I lost my job. I resigned. I lost my house because she was on the loan. And then I had lost my health too before that. But I never, I never felt closer to God than I did then because I knew God was going to restore that. And I did. I, I was full on for him. And uh, I, I was so desperate to find a new love in my life. And the Lord said, that's me though. That's me and only me. That's that intimacy piece. And I started to just read the Bible, but I read it differently because I went to my pastor and I said, well, I've outlined the Bible three different times. I've got thousands of pages of note cards. I went to Bible college. Maybe I should start reading it in Hebrew. And he gave me his seminary books and I got a new translation and I opened it up on the first day and the Lord said, what are you doing, son? You don't even know what holiness is. You have all this intellectual knowledge, and yes, you have a relationship with me, but I want to take you so much further, so much deeper. I want to show you who I am at the core. I want to take that little boy who is just full of shame and bitterness and hurt, and I want to restore that. I want to renew you. I want to transform you into somebody I can be proud of. That was 2008. And shortly after that, about 10 months later, I met my wife now, Joy. And actually I was living in another state. Funny, I met her online and, and she said uh, she was looking for a Christian man. So I sent her a quick email and I said, uh, I appreciate your boldness for the Lord. And she said, thank you. She said, but I'm not interested in dating a, a man that lives in another state. I live in Las Vegas. She said, especially Las Vegas. I said, well, I still have a home in, in, in Fresno, in Clovis area. She goes, what church do you go to? I said, Mountain View. Well, she happened to go to the same church. Wow. And that was a God thing. And then God just blessed that marriage. And uh, my, my, first, uh, my first wife, Stacy, we didn't have any kids. And uh, I married Joy and have, have, like I said, I went from, from no kids to three wonderful stepkids to five grandkids. And now I'm grampy. Come on. And then God took, took my, my aspirations and, and just turn it around. And, and, and now I'm, I'm leading this ministry, and, you know, and I'm comforting those with the same comfort that I myself receive from Jesus. Amen. Now, Mike, there was a, something you mentioned as you were sharing what God has shared with you as far as restoring you and healing you. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. He basically reparented me. It talks about in Psalms where at times your your um, your father and mother will will leave you, much like David. You know, people look at David and they say, "Well, why did he act out with Bathsheba? Well, he should have been at worship." No, look at his childhood. Look at the abuse. When 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 Jesse, you know, brought him forward to Samuel, he didn't bring him forward. He was the runt. And obviously, we know the story with David and Goliath. He restored David like he restored me. He said, "I will reparent you." And I realized in my marriages, both my marriages now, that I look 
towards my, my wife as my God at times. Now, my wives make great wife, but they make a lousy God. And I realize now that I have to take when I'm lonely, when I feel insecure or shameful, I take it to Jesus because he's the ultimate comforter. And I didn't have to have to do a lot of it, but I realized he took that pain in me. And see, and that's what we miss. And I don't care if it's pornography addiction or drugs or alcohol or shopping or Facebook. We all have pain in our heart. We have sin in our heart, but if we don't deal with that pain and we don't allow Jesus to do it, and that's a miraculous story that, that I love to share because I'm like an onion and God is still continuing to peel those layers of my life and saying, you know, I'm transforming you until, until your time is to go to glory. And, and that's what we miss in the church. We get all this intellectual knowledge, but we don't have that relationship with him. And I, I you know, he's my best friend outside my wife and my brother Russell, you know, he's there, he's sitting next to me now, he's in my heart. You know, the Holy Spirit was with me, but now he's loud and he's ringing in my ears. And I, and, and I don't want to stop that. Hmm. Mike, who is Jesus to you? Jesus is the Lord of my life. Um, he's everything to me. He's, he's the breath I take. You know, he's why I wake up in the morning and why I can sleep peaceful at night. And, and, and Jesus is the person that I want to tell with all my might. And most people that are hearing this probably feel so shameful and, and boldness. At times, my wife says, you're too bold with your story. Yeah, I am. But I want people to know who the real Jesus is. I want that relationship that I have. But it takes commitment and takes love. And, and, and we, we overcomplicate the Bible, okay? It's a love letter to us. It's relationship to us. And, and that, that's who he is to me, you know? Somebody that can just restore me at 59 years old. You know, most guys my age are retired. I'm not going to retire. I'm in a new season of my life, and the Lord has told me that there's so much out there. there there's, people need hope, and they, they need love, and they care, you know? And, and that's the story. And I'm discovering more things about Jesus every day, you know, the things that he does. Even when we're recording this, you know, my air conditioner was out for four months, and, and half hour before we recorded it, it got you know, reinstall. I mean, God is there. People say, I don't hear from God. I hear from God all the time. Sometimes it's signs. It's sometimes interactions I have with people. But that's that peace that surpasses all understanding. And that's the relationship that he wants to have with everybody. If we just, we just give him those burdens, like David did. You dealt with a lot of sexual brokenness throughout your, in, throughout your life. Um, when it comes to the temptation of it, do you still deal with that? And if so, um, how do you deal with it? And if not, then, you know, that's that. But yeah. are you still dealing with those temptations? Absolutely. I, I had a board member from another ministry a couple of weeks ago call me and said, Mike, are you tempted? I said, well, let me think. Two hours ago I was <laughs> when I jumped in the shower. What'd you do? I said, I cried out to Jesus. Jesus reminded me I forgot to put my towel in the towel warmer. So I jumped out all cold and that temptation us. We're always gonna be tempted is what we do with that. But now I run to Jesus and, and, and I run to, to my closest accountability partners. One of my colleagues at the ministries, Russell. That's what we have. God brings people in our life that we can go and we can say, hey, I am tempted, I need prayer. That's what I do. Am I perfect? By no means. But when I feel lonely and I feel abandoned and at times scared, I have PTSD from law enforcement. I've been involved in shootings. I go to my wife and I say, I'm lonely. I need, I need you to love me and hold me. You know, I'm that little boy. And that's what I do now. And, that, and that's why, why I can sit here today and share that testimony because I'm not tempted. One of the things I take away, I thought I'd go to my grave with this with this sin, with the sexual addiction. And God took, God took that, that desire to act out about 95% away. But I asked him a couple years ago, I said, why am I still tempted? He says, because I know how vulnerable you are, because I'm gonna use that to draw you closer to me all the time, all the time, all the time. Like for people who are watching your testimony right now and are identifying with that struggle, um, whether it's pornography, whether it's prostitution, getting involved with prostitutes or just sex overall, struggling in that area. 
What is a word of encouragement that you can give to that person that doesn't know what to do? First of all, hope. Hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For some, I know God heals spontaneously. He does that. I've seen him do that. But for most of us, it doesn't. It's a journey of healing so we can relate to others. It's realizing that you have to deal with the trauma in your past. And it may not be the trauma that I had, but there were key points in your life or even some perceptions that you thought that you weren't loved or cared for um, that caused that, that caused that devil at times to sneak in and say, you're not worth, worth it. But it's getting to those core issues. It's getting help. It's getting the right folks around you for accountability. It's several things. There's, there's no magic potion. It's spending time with the Lord. But dealing with that brokenness and allowing Jesus Christ to come in and heal you at that core level and reparent you and, and have a counselor or a pastor that can walk with you and share their story of victory. And when you fall, we call it here at the ministry, we call it, Russell calls it a slight lapse in progress. Okay, you're moving forward. Okay, you're not perfect. Like me, if you were in decades of addiction or, or prostitution or drug use, I, I hope God heals you, but most of the time it's gonna take you a long time. It took me several years to heal from this because as God healed me at one layer, I realized, well, wait a minute, I have another layer. My layer right now is self-sustaining. I don't think I need the Lord. Then I remember what Paul says, pray without ceasing. Oh, that's right. Hmm. I need him continually in my life to keep me. But my last word, this is a winnable battle. And, and the last thing I will share is God wants to bless you. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope in a future. This isn't a prosperity message, folks. If I realized how much God wanted to bless me, to completely restore my life, to give me a new family, what's better than that? There's nothing, there's nothing better than that, you know? And, and that's the secret, a life fully dedicated to Jesus Christ. Amen. Mike, when you first told, well, when you told your, your parents about uh, the molestation, um, they didn't know how to basically react to that, and they just told you to tell them to stop. But for that parent that is watching right now and maybe has heard from their children the same thing, and maybe their response was similar or didn't know how to respond, You've worked with many people in this area when it comes to sexual brokenness. So what is a word of encouragement that you can give to parents who have heard of their children being molested? Recognize it. Don't be the silent parent, okay? Don't look at yourself as you did something wrong, but validate your child's emotions, their feelings. Let them know that you're gonna walk through them with Jesus through this, okay? We know it's epidemic that goes on. And, and, and as parents, at times, we don't know how to deal with it. But you have to be honest and open, and, and you have to believe what happens, and you have to show that support, and you have to create a culture in your family where your kids can come to you and tell you the most terrifying secrets, you know, that they're afraid to share with anybody. And share with them your brokenness, too. We miss that point. We think as parents, we have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect, but we have to say, mom and dad struggled too in this area, okay? We need to get you help. And because what you're gonna do is you're gonna take that shame into your next relationship. And that, that is gonna cause horrific relationship problems as you move forward in life. And the Lord doesn't want you to do that. And, and get the proper help for that, but validate their feelings and show them how much you love and care for them and hold them and squeeze them. You know how many clients we have that, that we ask, did your parents tell you they loved you? Oh, they did. I said, did, did they ever tell you they loved you? And they break out in tears and they say, no. How hard is that, folks? What's the most important thing? What does Jesus teach us to do? Love, right? Love unconditionally. But we miss that. We miss that. Mike, any last words for people who are watching your testimony right now? Just the last word is, there's been a lot of research done in the last couple of years, what causes sexual addiction. One of the things I didn't touch on, it, it literally changes your brain chemistry. I was told in fourth grade that uh, I'd never be good in math. I wound up lecturing at MIT and then 
consulting at NASA, so I know a little bit about brain science, but it literally changes your brain. That's why it's so hard. That's why we think I'll never do it again, but we do it again because that's what we're programmed to do. And there's a lot of research in the areas why it continues. And, and that's one of the things there. Um, there. There's a whole discipline now to deal with that. And, and our ministry is, is part of that. And one of my colleagues, Russell, is a pioneer in this field. Uh, so it validates what we thought before was just sin in the heart. There is pain and that pain is caused by trauma. And if you don't deal with that trauma, then this is going to continue. Yeah. Mike, for people who are watching on the other side of the screen, could you just pray for them? Absolutely. Lord, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to, to just share my testimony, Lord. Um, I'm nobody, Lord, um, from nowhere, but you're somebody from somewhere, Lord. And I just pray for those that are watching this, Lord, and listening to this, Lord. There's a reason, Lord. Um, you don't do anything by chance, but by divine appointment and orchestration, Lord. And I just pray for those men and women, Lord, that hear this testimony, even the boys and girls, Lord, that you'll, uh, first of all, that they'll feel your love, your encouragement, Lord, and whatever they're facing, whatever struggles they are, Lord, I just pray that they know you're there. Even the midst of the deepest debauchery that I was involved in, Lord, I knew you were there because you never leave me. You never forsake me, Lord. And I'm nobody special, Lord. You love me just like everybody else in this world, Lord. So I pray for those, Lord, and I pray that you give them encouragement to get help, Lord, uh, to reach out for help, Lord. I know once you reach out, you're going to provide those resources, Father God. That's how you do things because you want to get the glory. This isn't about me, Lord. And I also pray that I'm not the hero in this story, that you are, Father God. And that the folks hearing and listening to this know this is a winnable battle, Lord. Uh, but they have to take that first step. They have to admit that that they're struggling in this area and and they can get help, Lord. So that's my prayer for them. And I look forward to to the comments and the replies. Um, that's what I do, Lord, and that's that's my passion for you, Lord. And it's just going to be exciting to see how you work in these lives, Lord. And one last prayer for for Eric and Genesis. What, what a gift they are to you, Father God. And just thank you for this opportunity. In your son's name, amen.